I'm going to invite you to come in and find a seat as we get started this morning. We're excited to worship the Lord with you all today. We're going to begin with our scripture reading this morning. So if you want to turn in your copy of God's word or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to read from Psalm 84 this morning. The word of the God says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. And they go through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The, the early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning as we begin our service. Our Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we cry out to you as we long to be in your presence, Lord, to, to be before you face to face, God, to worship you in your splendor and your majesty. God, but for now, we are thankful that you have given us this picture of heaven, Lord, the gathering of your saints where we can gather together to worship you, to lift up our hearts and our voices to you, God. And I pray that you would just come and meet with us today as we uh, sing songs of praise to give glory to your name and to hear your word preached to us, God. I pray that you would just uh, fill our hearts with, with gladness, with joy uh, of you, God, as we are reminded of who you are, what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we open up with Jesus shall reign. Yeah. 
that Jesus reigns and that we can lean on him no matter what may be may come our way
we've begun our service just singing a few songs about the sovereignty of God, and we're going to continue that. Uh, this next song, it's called Sovereign Over Us. We've sung it before. It's been a while. Um, the last time we sang it was the end of September. Uh, it was the last Sunday of September, and the reason why I remember this is because we spent a lot of time, I, I spent a lot of time listening to this song to prepare for it because it was new to me, and I wanted to teach it to the congregation because I thought it was a great song. Listen to it over and over and over again to the point where I was waking up hearing this song. I would wake up, this song was in my head. And the first verse, there's strength within the sorrow, there's beauty in our tears. You meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. And I would wake up just, and then I would get to the chorus. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. And I, those words were just, I would wake up every day for a week and then past that Sunday when we sang that song as, as a congregation. And that following Wednesday, I got the call that my mom had passed away. This song was there. This song is what got me through those coming weeks. That I, rem I was reminded no matter what, God is with me and he is sovereign over me. And I was so thankful. And so I want to sing it this morning. I want us to sing this together and hopefully it can be a comfort to you. Where if you, mi you might be going through a period of mourning. You might be going through a time where you're just wondering, what is God doing in this? But that we could say as Job did, that when the Lord give, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So let's sing this together. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears.
turn it for our good. You turn it for our good and for your glory. Even in the valley, you are faithful. You're working for our good. You're working for our good. Good morning, everyone. What a blessing to be here. Thank you, worship team. Uh, we do glorify God, and that's why we're here today. We're here to worship him and, and uh, speak of his greatness and his love for us. Um, we have some visitors here with us this morning, or not visitors, longtime family members. Uh, Penny Remley is here with us this morning. <laughs> I think she's here to make sure Don has at least one person. <laughs> He's starting a new class this morning here in the sanctuary. It's uh, Minor Prophets, so you're welcome. <laughs> and it's, it's a blessing for us, Penny, for you to be here this morning. And uh, I understand Harley and Eleanor are here this morning. <laughs> welcome, welcome. God bless you guys. And I would like to uh, uh, remind you all to fill out the uh, uh, forms on the, on the ends of the aisles that, uh, that you were here this morning. Uh, we're working on trying to keep track of you guys better. And uh, uh, the, it's not that you're here, it's when you're not here that we're looking for. So if you don't fill out the forms, we don't know whether you're here or not. And uh, we have to rely on our memory, which is fading for some of us. Okay, I'd like to extend a special greeting to any of those visiting this morning. Do we have any visitors that are willing to raise their hand this morning? <laughs> okay, welcome. Welcome this morning. Good to have you worship with us this morning. Um, also, I'd like to thank those who are joining us online who are unable to be here this morning. Um, we welcome you and we are thankful for your participation with us. And if you could, uh, if you feel able, uh, to call us and call the church office during the week and let us know 
that you were able to uh, uh, visit us online and, and to share with us, worship with us. Uh, today, I mentioned uh, Don's class. Also, we're starting a new class. Uh, Mark and Ken are starting a class on, um, on the book of James, and a, a study, and that will be in the library, I understand. And also, pastor's class is going to be in the, uh, continue in the music room. So, um, there's um, a lot of... <laughs> Reasons or places for you to choose and pick where you would like to worship for adult Sunday school. And we welcome you there. The women's ministry. Am I messing you up upstairs? Uh, the women's ministry invites all women to their new meeting on Friday, February 11th at 6.30 p.m. And if uh, you need more information, you can talk to. Mm, who do we talk to? Somebody want to raise their hands? Okay. <laughs> Carol, okay. Uh, talk to Carol if you need more information on that. Um, okay, I'd like to announce now that uh, we're having an all-church family, uh, not an all-church family, a members' uh, church um, business meeting on February 13th at 11 a.m. after the service. And uh, we will be wrapping up uh, last year's. <laughs> last year's uh, business, uh, closing out the year, and uh, we'll, we'll hear, be hearing reports from the different uh, portions of the church, different committees, and uh, also we are presenting uh, an updated church constitution and bylaws for approval, and uh, our constitution says uh, that it should be available to the to the members 10 days prior to the meeting. So uh, <laughs> it is being printed up this week and will be available by uh, Thursday of this week. That's our plan at this time. So anybody that would like to have a copy of that to review before our meeting, because we will be voting whether to approve those changes or, or not on our meeting on February 13th. And so those will be in the church office later in the week. Uh, this morning, we are presenting Al Maurer. Al Maurer is, uh, has applied for membership in our, in our uh, church body here. There he is. Could you stand up, Al? <laughs> okay. Take a good look at this guy. <laughs> he, is, he has 30 days now. You have 30 days to report on him and say, hey, we don't think he should be a member of this church. And in 30 days, we, uh, the elders and deacons have already interviewed Al, and uh, we have had uh, several years to, to watch him, so we have recommended him now to the congregation for, uh, for membership. <laughs> Thanks, Al. And uh, our missionary of the month is Carol Johnson, and she works with EFCA Ministry to Children Global Fingerprints. And uh, this... Boy, the, the month is drawing to close real quickly, but if you would still like to, to donate or designate to her uh, in, the, in the offering box, uh, you may put uh, on your envelope or on the check uh, just MOM, Missionary of the Month, if you'd like to designate to her. Specifically, there's more information on her out in the Missionary Wall. I don't think all of you are uh, familiar with the Missionary Wall. If you aren't, it's in our where we have coffee fellowship. It's on the north 
east corner of the fellowship uh, hall there. Um, Pastor Brian and uh, Alyssa Bell are starting a new connection group for families. And they will be studying the book Family Driven Faith, which talks about discipleship in the home. And child care will be provided. It's going to be at, at their home, the Bell's home. And just see the Bell's for more information on dates and times. Uh, the offering box, uh, we just have an offering box in the back. We don't pass the offering. We, uh, you're free to give <laughs> uh, whatever. The, you have blessed this church greatly. And you may designate your giving if you like to any, any uh, specific thing. And, uh, or you just uh, goes to the general fund. Uh, we just thank you for your generous giving. All right, our invocation this morning is Psalm 116. If you would like to stand with me as I read from God's word. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompass me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord, and righteous our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O oh my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dwelt, has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe even when I spoke, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious is the sight of the Lord in the death of his saints. O oh Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O oh Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you. You may be seated. rocking pedestal here this morning. All right, would you uh, join me now? Let's bow our heads and, and uh, take our petitions to the Lord. Lord, we praise you for your blessings over us and your mercy toward us. We are not worthy of your grace. So we are thankful for Jesus who brings us into a right relationship with you. May our lives reflect the gratitude we feel for the salvation you have given us. We confess our sins to you, Lord. Forgive us when we fail to walk according to your word. Forgive our sins of omission and commission. 
May your spirit fan the flame of revival in our hearts and our ministries. May the desire of holiness grow in our lives, and may our devotion to you be pure. We pray for the success of the new discipleship hour classes. May the Lord, may you continue to stir with hunger for his word and the desire for growth and truth. We pray for the success of the OCS HST dinner this Friday, Lord. Uh, we thank you for those who have, have uh, and, and are putting so much effort into this. Uh, we pray that you bless the, the students that are uh, planning a trip this uh, spring. Um, and we pray that you would bless those who attend and that they would do so willingly, Father, in a desire to serve and support your ministries. And we pray for Carol Johnson, our Ministry of the Month, uh, Minister <laughs> of the Month uh, for Global Fingerprints that she serves. May orphan children learn of the grace and mercy offered in Jesus Christ. And may all missionaries represent you well in their service throughout the world. And we pray for the connection groups, Father, that you would bless them. And uh, they would glorify you, and they would cause growth among ourselves, that we'd grow to in relation, our relationships with one another and with you. And we pray for those in authority over us as the local state and at the local state and national level. May they serve well with a spirit of humility, and may the wisdom of God's spirit endow them. And may those who seek immoral policies be frustrated in their efforts. And we pray for all those who are ill, hospitalized, or homebound. May the Lord touch them with his mercy and comforting grace. And may they feel connected to us through the online services, Father. May the Lord bless the offering this morning. Bless those who give and grant wisdom to our leaders as they steward these funds. May all the resources of this church be used to your glory and for the blessings of your people. We pray for the sermon this morning. Father, may you speak through our pastor as he teaches us from your word. And may our hearts be open, Father, uh, to love and trust you more each day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we invite those with young children, if you want to take them over to their classes. Now's the time to do that, and the rest of you, we invite you to stand as we continue in our worship as Laurel leads us in singing, Be Still My Soul.
So if anything happened on the way to the forum, Okay, now? All right. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. All safe and blessed we shall be at last. Who knew that that would refer to microphones that aren't working? The Lord is good. It is good to be in his house. It is good to be with his people. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for those of you joining online. We miss you here, but we're glad you're there and joining us at the throne of grace this morning as we study the Word of God together. And I'm excited that we're in a new season with new classes starting this morning, so I look forward to seeing all these different classes with groups going this morning full. So do your part if you can, hang around and go deeper in the Word of God with the group this morning. Well, the late Anglican clergyman John Yates tells the story of the only survivor of a shipwreck that washed up on a small, uninhabited island. He cried out to God to save him. Every day he scanned the horizon looking for help, but none seemed forthcoming. So resigned to what he thought was his fate, he eventually managed to build a rough hut and put the few possessions that survived the trip inside the hut. And then one day... He was out hunting for food, and when he came back, to his great surprise, he found his little hut in flames, the smoke rolling up to the sky. The worst had happened. He truly had lost everything. He was stung with grief. But to his great surprise, early the next day, a ship drew near the island and rescued him. How did you know I was here, he asked the crew. We saw your smoke signal. The guiding hand of God's providence had led his rescue to him. Now the doctrine of God's providence is one that does not receive a lot of press today. We don't maybe talk about it as much as we ought. But it is one that is all over the events that we will look at in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. According to the New Dictionary of Theology, providence of God is that beneficent outworking of God's sovereignty whereby all events are directed and disposed to bring about the purposes of glory and good for which the universe was made. Simply put, the doctrine of providence is that God guides and directs all things for his eternal glory and for the good of his creation. And haven't we already sung that this morning in the hymns of worship? Well, in Matthew chapter 2, we're going to see several examples of God's providence as he guides the events surrounding the childhood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it was through dreams or angels or the decisions of men, God is directing all things so that his purposes are fulfilled in Christ. And so we're going to take a deeper look at these truths as we consider three short stories as they are found in the Word of God in Matthew chapter 2. And one of the things that is a real blessing about our church here at the Evangelical Free Church in Oroville is our love for the Word of God. And one thing that is sure week by week, if you hear nothing else and you participate in nothing else, in our worship services you will hear the Word of God. Because we read it out loud. Because that's how God speaks to us. And so I invite you once again to rise as we read our passage for this morning 
Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And the wonderful word of God says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was warned, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, as we've read your word this morning, thank you for the privilege that we have of having a Bible that is open in front of us, having your spirit that indwells within us, and having your people gathered as they sit under your authority to hear your word. So, Father, would you teach us now, as you guide us by the Spirit, might we have a greater glimpse of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Now in this short section of Matthew's gospel, we're going to look at different events involving the first family, if you will. Joseph and Mary and Jesus as God leads them. We'll look at angels, dreams, the, the collision between good and evil, the importance of life, the horror of death. In the midst of dying, we see one child who is saved, who will be the savior of all who believe. In the midst of all of these different things, we see the fulfillment of prophecy as promises and events long ago foreshadow, point forward to, and are fulfilled in the new age of revelation that came in with the birth of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll take good notes this morning and share them with someone this week as you review what God has for us in Matthew 2. But we begin with the divine deliverance Divine deliverance. Now by this time the Magi have left Bethlehem and have returned home. Their time of devotion and worship of Jesus is over. And they need to get back to their own people. And undoubtedly they will bring back many stories of what they have encountered and what they have seen as they met and worshipped and gave their offerings to the king of the Jews. And as we saw last week at the end of our time, they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod and to report on what they had found. Surely that dream warmed them of the wicked intentions of Herod to kill the Christ child. 
So they skipped going back to Jerusalem and returned back east by another route. But as we saw last week, the evil man that he was, Herod was more concerned about saving his own kingdom than he was about saving his own soul. And now we come to the first clear example of God's providence in our text for today. For under his guiding hand, we see a nighttime exhortation. A nighttime exhortation. And the text says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Once again in the Christmas narrative, Joseph is given further guidance through a dream. Now you notice that Joseph was not mentioned in the previous story, the first 12 verses of this chapter, but here he becomes a prominent figure in the story. An angel appears to him in a warning and a command. He's appealing to Joseph as the head of the family and telling him to leave quickly to be the one who would protect and provide for the family, to play the man, as it were, and to take care of those under his charge. And they're told to flee to Egypt and to flee away from Herod. For the wicked ruler is searching to destroy all rivals to his throne, just as he has done again and again, as history records from us. Far from wanting to go and actually worshiping the Christ child, as he claimed to the Magi, he was looking to destroy him, consistent with his nature, where he's greedy and ruthless and power-hungry. And we'll look more at the backdrop as we continue, but now we see a neighborly escape. A neighborly escape. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. So immediately, in the middle of the night, after this revelation from the angel of God, Joseph and his family takes off. They would have to act quickly because, as we've already said, Jerusalem was only about five, a little more miles, five to six miles from Bethlehem. It would not take long for Herod and his horsemen to be upon the village. There was simply no time to linger and to ponder. The command of the Lord required immediate obedience. Well, let's think about that. Is there ever a command of the Lord that does not require immediate obedience? After all, he's the one that knows the beginning from the end and sees all things perfectly. When he commands it, he means it. And so it's just an ongoing lesson for us in our lives that obedience is always pleasing to the Lord. But as we saw last week, the Magi brought their expensive gifts, their valuable gifts to Jesus. And we saw that God was preparing ahead of time for this family that he would soon send into exile, if you will, into Egypt. And so in his good providence, he had provided the needs for the expenses and needs of this family in their rapid and quick departure. And I think subtly we can learn from that, look, God knows our circumstances, and as we trust in him, he will meet our needs. Later on, Jesus would tell us that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so, yes, we want to be those who would trust the Lord for everything in our daily lives because he is able to provide for them. Now, the nearest border to Egypt would have been a minimum of 75 miles away. And for this family leaving in the middle of the night, that would take some time to travel. But in fact, Roman influence extended further into parts of northern Egypt, and so it would have taken even longer for them to get to a place of refuge beyond the reach of Rome, beyond the reach of his cohorts, such as Herod. 
who was, we were reminded last week was in a plot, as it were. He was in cahoots with the Romans. So how long would it take for this family to have to travel up to 150 miles to get to a safe place? Certainly several days. But we see the providence of God as, in fact, they did arrive safely at their destination, wherever it might be. But Egypt would have been a logical place for them to go because that had actually been a place of refuge for Jews over many centuries. When there was trouble in the land, they would go to Egypt. And it's estimated then at the time of Christ, there might have been as many as one million Jews in the land of Egypt. Perhaps along the coast of Alexandria, where many of them would have settled. But we don't know where Joseph took the family. We just know that by going there, he certainly would have found an audience ready to receive and comfort him. Because many others had also gone to flee persecution and difficulty. Now, we're not told as much as we would like about any of these stories. We would like to fill in the details and have more information, but we're given just enough to see the general outline of the story, but we see enough to know that this didn't happen by accident. This all happened by divine direction, the providence of God, who was arranging all things so that prophecy would be fulfilled. This is a reminder, my friends, that our times are in his hands, that nothing happens by accident, that he is indeed, as we have just so beautifully sung in that song, he is sovereign over us. We can trust him in the details of our lives. And in this case, we can trust him in the details of our lives, in, in the lives of the Joseph and Mary and, and Jesus, because it led to a new exodus. It led to the fulfillment of prophecy. The text tells us that they remained there until the death of Herod, and this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I've called my son. God arranged these things so that prophecy would be fulfilled. Now, to understand what, what is happening here, we need to have a little bit of history. What, why is this language used here? And, and what did it mean in the history then of the people of God preparing it for us? Well, the first mention that we have of God's son is in Exodus chapter 4. Where when Moses is confronting Pharaoh under the instructions of God, he is told to Pharaoh, let my people go that my son, my firstborn son, might go and worship me. And we know that in that context, the idea of a son is of a favored status. That God has placed his favor upon the people of Israel and that he would protect the plan that he had purposed for them. And God then called Israel out of Egypt in what we know as the Exodus. Of course, the Exodus would then be used throughout Old Testament history by the writers, by the prophets, as a sign of redemption, of deliverance, that those that were in slavery, those that were in bondage, were brought out. They were redeemed. They were delivered. But that was then used by the prophets to say, there's even a greater day coming, a greater exodus, a greater deliverance that would come as the prophets called it and the new covenant. It's what they referred to as mentioned in many places in the Old Testament prophets. And this sets the stage then for what will come as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew because Jesus will later say that I am the bringing in the new covenant in my blood. I am the founder of the church. I have appointed 12 to rule over this new community of the redeemed who will guide the people of God. In 
Jesus, God is forming a, a new community. And Jesus now becomes the ultimate son of God, for he is the ultimate son of God. And if he's, if you will, a, a new Israel who will lead God's people forever. As, as Dr. D.A. Carson says, at this point, Jesus himself is the locus of true Israel. He is God's son. And we'll see more of this as Matthew very intentionally is laying the groundwork for how Jesus has come to be the fulfillment of all that had been promised through the prophets before him. And so as one commentator says, the Exodus demonstrated Israel's unique status as God's son. But what was true of Israel on a metaphorical level is more profoundly true of Jesus the Messiah. All of this was of divine initiative, for God says, out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew, being the good Jewish scholar that he is, redeemed out of a tax-collecting background, understanding how the scriptures fit together, would see a parallel between Moses and Pharaoh and Jesus and Herod. Moses, used as God to lead the people out of Egypt in a great exodus, setting them free from slavery. Jesus will come out of Egypt and will lead his people on an even greater exodus, already referred to in Matthew chapter 1. He will save his people from their sins. Pharaoh wanted to destroy the sons of Israel at the time of their birth, but God would not allow it to happen. Here, a Pharaoh-type figure Herod wants to destroy God's ultimate son. But again, God prevents it from happening. Just as God had protected his son, Israel, in the Old Testament in the days of Pharaoh, he protects his true son, Jesus, in the days of Herod. Now, to be clear, if we go to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where this is cited, we see that it refers to Israel collectively, sorry, collectively, as a people. It talks about the people of, Egypt, uh, people of Israel being in bondage in Egypt and God will call them out. But Matthew takes that and recognizes that a greater fulfillment is coming and now sees that the locus of the people of God, the focus, the relationship between God and the nations now is focused in one person. The true son of God, the true redeemer, the true deliverer who will lead the people in a new exodus an exodus out of sin and death and wrath. And in a very step-by-step -step manner, Matthew is going to show how Jesus, in a sense, will retrace much of Israel's history. But as where Adam, Abraham, Moses, the prophets, they all failed, Jesus will not fail. He will never fail. He will fulfill perfectly the plan of God. So that the ultimate promises of God fulfilled to all the nations will come to fruition. God will always protect his plan that he has. And there's biblical patterns that we see that were left unfulfilled will be fulfilled in a new pattern that Jesus will bring in. Now how long Mary and Joseph had to stay in Egypt we don't know. We just know that as we said last week Jesus would have been born according to our calendars between 4 and 6 B.C. The Magi would have had time to come and visit, uh, uh, visit Jesus before the death of Herod, who died in the spring of 4 B.C. 
So at some point, Jesus and his family are taken into Egypt. They remain there for a while until sometime after Herod has died. Because God's timing is always perfect. In his divine deliverance, we can trust him to bring about his plan. So after divine deliverance, we see dastardly destruction. Dastardly destruction. We find Jesus safely away in Egypt. And after they had visited the Magi, visited uh, Jesus in Bethlehem, the Magi do not go back to Jerusalem. They do not obey the order that Herod had given them. We've already said why. The time was of the essence that Jesus had, they didn't want to be part of uh, the plot against Jesus. Joseph is warned, must get quickly out. But if this trip could have been done in a short period of time, it could have been walked in a day, it would not take long for Herod to realize that he had been tricked. Clearly he was waiting for the Magi to return so that he could hatch his evil plan. But since they did not return, he would have to hatch another plan, and so he gave a wicked order, a wicked order. So Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is consistent with what we know from history about the character of Herod. He had no trouble tricking others. He had no trouble planning plots that would bring about the destruction of others. But though he enjoyed and often did trick others, he himself would not tolerate being tricked. So having shown himself a wrathful man, he does so again. But we need to see that ultimately his anger is not directed towards the Magi, but towards God. We, as we said last week, he had obtained his kingship through corrupt means. He was not eligible to become the king of the Jews. He had entered into an unlawful agreement with the Romans to keep control over that region. But in his mind, he was the rightful king of the Jews. How dare there be one born king of the Jews? He has to get rid of this threat. He has already mistreated many. If you ever have a chance to read anything on the history of Herod the Great, you will find the saying to be true that was said of him. That it was better to be Herod's pig, Hus, than to be Herod's son, Cuius, from the original Greek. We might translate it this way. It was better to be Herod's sow than to be his son. He was a vicious, bloodthirsty man. And so for him, killing some boys, young boys in a village would be no big deal. Because he valued his power and possession more than anything else. And this horrific story that we have here in these few verses in Matthew has come to be known as the slaughter of the innocents. That Herod, in a wicked decree, ordered that all male children two years old and younger in Bethlehem and the surrounding region should be brutally killed by the Roman soldiers. Now this is horrific. It is terrible. But historians tell us that there was at most about a thousand people living in the village of Bethlehem at that time. So the number of boys two years and younger would have been a few handfuls, maybe as few as 10, maybe as many as 30. Now that does not lessen the nature of the evil. But it, it puts aside the assumption that we see in some movies where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There simply were not that many residents in that area at that time. 
And in fact, outside of the Bible, we don't even find this account written about Herod. Because he committed so many other atrocities that were even of such greater magnitude, this one doesn't show up. But because it's in the word of God, we know it happened. And it's horrific. And we're grieved over it. And we call it what it is. Vile, vicious slaughter of the innocent. But don't miss the bigger picture here. Because the bigger picture that's going on right from the beginning of Matthew's gospel is part of that old story that goes all the way back to the garden with the fact that there is an evil one behind this evil act. As Jesus talks about his enemy, the devil, he refers to him as the destroyer and the murderer who always opposes the works of the ways of God. And so he was behind the acts of Pharaoh to try to destroy the children of Israel as they were as they were in exile in Egypt. And he try, he's the one behind trying to destroy the Son of God in Matthew's day. And we'll see early on in Jesus' earthly ministry, public ministry, the confrontation that will take place between him and the enemy who is always trying to destroy the things of God and is always trying to destroy us because we belong to God. We find the image of Revelation chapter 12 to be important here where we have the image of a dragon standing ready to devour the newborn child as he's about ready to be born. An image that there is always a satanic plot that is behind trying to destroy the things of God. And so at many times in Jesus' earthly and public ministry, Satan will try to destroy him. But we know that that battle between good and evil that began in the garden when the serpent deceived Eve and the promise was given that the battle would go on between the serpent and the seed of the woman is now reaching its culmination because the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ, will win and will bring in the plan of God forever. But this is still a wicked order from any, any standpoint. And I have no doubt that Herod has faced his just desserts over these wicked things. Secondly, we see a wailing with optimism, a wailing with optimism. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This text comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. But what is interesting is that in the context of Jeremiah 31, it is actually a, a chapter of great hope and promise for the people of Israel. It's a promise that though they will go off into exile, that they will be returned and that God will bring in a new covenant. And at the end of Jeremiah 31, it says the conditions of this new covenant, actually the effects of this new covenant, will be that they will know the Lord and they will have their sins forgiven. So most of the chapter is very positive, but in the midst of that chapter, there's this painful statement that Rachel is weeping over her children. Rachel here symbolizing Israel as they watch in the city of Ramah in 586 B.C. as the exiles are carried off to Babylon. In the midst of the weeping, in the midst of the wailing, there is the promise that God is in control and that there is a greater day coming if they had but look and remind themselves that God orchestrates all things for his good. That there is hope. That there is weeping. 
And so we weep with those who weep, we mourn with those who mourn, we rejoice with those who rejoice, but we also recognize that though mourning may endure for a night, joy will come in the morning as we sang, He is sovereign over us. And so as the mothers of Bethlehem weep here as anyone would, it's in the context of Jesus being carried off into exile, going to Egypt, but he will come back. And when he comes back, he will live out and implement the new covenant, the hope of joy. There is a better day coming. In the midst of death, there is a word of hope. Because the one who will conquer death has come. From our vantage point, limited as we are, we simply cannot always understand the mystery of iniquity. Why evil things happen. Why evil people do evil things. It's hard for us to imagine why God would allow certain things to happen. But he's the Lord of life. He's the Lord of all. He's the only one that's perfect. He's the only one that sees clearly. He's the only one that knows the beginning from the end. And so we can trust him in all things. Because he will work out his plan for the salvation of his own. From the time of the exile, there was great weeping as children were carried off to Babylon. But the hope was that they would return and experience an even greater blessing than what they had lost. And so for the people of God, even in Matthew 2, there can be joy because the one who can actually do something about the situation will return and implement the new covenant. Matthew does some interesting things as we try to follow along how he is using Old Testament scripture to point to Christ. And we're going to see how he uses it all throughout this gospel, but it's good for us at this moment to just stop for a moment to think about what he's doing. In the first instance that we have in our text this morning, he is showing the fulfillment of prophecy by analogy, or we might say typology. That there was a type of something that happened earlier in history. It might be a deliverer. It might be deliverance. It might be a type of salvation. It might be a king. It might be a prophet. But there was a type that came beforehand. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that type, of that model. So as there was an exodus that led the people of Israel out of their slavery, Jesus is the leader of a greater exodus out of sin. Now, in the second instance, it might, we might say it's more by model. He's taking a historical event, and he's giving it a, a fresh look in light of Christ. This horrible event that's taking place, that took place in Jeremiah 31, he uses then to say, yes, there is real weeping and mourning and lamentation now, but it leads to, to greater joy in the future because God has not forgotten his promises. And so in our despair... In our fright, in our moments of weakness, in a broken and fallen world, we can look up, we can rejoice, we can remain steadfast because God has promised and he's given his word and there is a better day coming. If Jesus came the first time as a savior, which he did, fulfilling all of the prophecies that pointed to him, he will surely come the second time as the ultimate deliverer and judge and ruler and king, fulfilling all the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And so we can wait, even in the midst of difficulty, with optimism that he still reigns. 
because he promises such. Thirdly, we see directed destination, directed destination. As we said, Herod the Great died in about 4 B.C. And as I mentioned last week, the calendar that we currently use was, was brought into fruition, if you will, about the 6th century A.D. And after they had put it all up, they realized they had made several miscalculations. And so they had to shift some of the dates. And the question would come up, why didn't they adjust it so that Jesus was born in 1 A.D.? I don't know. I'm not the controller of the calendar. We have to live with the one that we have. But we know that it was before B.C. that Jesus was born. Strange as that rings on our ears. But Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And after his death, an angel appears once again. And once again, there's angels all around the Christmas story. In fact, as we will see as we go through Matthew's gospel, there's angels all around Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then as we go into the future and get the scenes in heaven, we see there's angels all around him on the throne. The angels were created to serve the purposes of God. And the ultimate purpose of God is the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here an angel appears to Joseph. Herod has died. They're still in exile. And the angel says, rise and return. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Certainly this included Herod, some of his cohorts. Maybe it included some of the religious leaders, as we saw last week, who were in, in plotting, if you will, with Herod. They didn't want a new king of Israel either. They had it really good with the political power that they had at the time. In the time of Moses, he was able to return to Egypt and then be the deliverer because those that sought his life had died. And he was used of God for the exodus. But here is one who is greater than Moses, who now returns from Egypt because those who sought his life have died, and he will return to bring about a great exodus. And his will always prevail. We might look at these events and we say, why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? And it might just be that it forces us to go deeper into the counsel of his will, to spend more time at his feet, to spend more time with his, our Bibles open and say, just help me understand. Help my finite mind understand in a better way your infinite purposes. Well, Herod does die, but before we go on, we need to have another little history lesson. You see, Herod had a very large territory that he was king over that included Palestine and other areas. And when he died in his final will, he had divided up the land into three areas to give to his three sons. But the Romans had learned their lesson. They didn't want one who would call himself king of the Jews. And so they refused to allow the leaders who would now rule over the areas of what we know as Israel today to be called themselves kings. So they had the names of tetrarchs and ethnarchs. We're going to get a chance to see all three of these sons as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. But they were not good blokes. They were as evil as their father for the most part, with possible one exception who wasn't quite as bad. But after the command to rise and return, they're, they're commanded to refrain and reroute. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. So we're told that they returned to Israel, but there's a problem. Power is now passed from Herod the Great to his son Archelaus. 
who was given the area of Samaria and Judea, Bethlehem being in the middle of Judea. And, and now they're going to return to Judea. But Archelaus was a young man, between 19 and 20 years old, when he took over as the ruler of this area. And he quickly proved to be even worse than his father. He was evil and bloodthirsty and at the slightest provocation would slaughter his enemies. In fact, he slaughtered so many people that he only lasted six years as a leader before the Romans said enough and exiled him to Gaul, which we know is part of France today. And their official reason for putting him into exile was because of cruelty and tyranny. Now, if you have had done any study at all of the history of Roman leadership, how evil do you have to be to be accused by them of cruelty and tyranny? Gives you an idea of how bad he was. He was bloodthirsty, and Joseph did, did well to be afraid of him. Now, the territory that Archelaus was over was taken away, and it was given to a prefect, sometimes you might say a governor, who would exercise direct Roman rule, but this new prefect would have no connections to the Jewish people at all, no connections with the religious parties at all, and history knows him as Pontius Pilate, who would be the one to send Jesus to the cross. And so we see the providence of God putting pieces into place so that his plan will be fulfilled in his perfect timing. But we get back to our text. It says, And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now this is the third dream in this chapter that Joseph has received. He's heard of Archelaus. He feared Herod the, the Great, his father. He now fears him. So he's not going to return to Bethel, Bethlehem in Judea, but he goes on to Galilee. And it was important that God reveal this to Joseph, where Jesus and the rest of the family should go, so that the evil machinations of men and the devil would not destroy him in Bethlehem, because Bethlehem was no longer safe. So they would bypass Judea and go to Galilee, skipping over the region of Samaria, which was in between. This is only stated in a few words, just on, on page in black and white, that they went on to Galilee, but there's a whole lot of divine providence going on in this direction. As they go to the village of Nazareth, it was a small village. It had only been started just a few hundred years before. It had maybe 500 people living in it at the time of Christ. But it was in the providence of God that Jesus would fulfill the promise as being Jesus the Nazarene. Not Jesus the Judahite. Not Jesus the Bethlehemite, but Jesus the Nazarene. And somehow, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. How is it the fulfillment of prophecy? We get to our final point, ridiculed and refused. Ridiculed and refused. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets, notice the plural, might be fulfilled. That he would be called a Nazarene. And so we have this address to fulfilled prophecy, but how? How is prophecy fulfilled here? For the fact remains that you can look all throughout your Old Testament from beginning to end, and you will not find a specific verse that says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. So how can Matthew, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, say that this fulfills the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene? 
And here we gain some insight then into Matthew's understanding of the Old Testament and the development of themes about the nature of the Messiah. And he does that by combining a couple of different strands of Old Testament prophecy. So stick with me here. Okay, we've got to try to figure out how Matthew would do this. He doesn't give us his great explanation, so we have to surmise based on what we know about the Old Testament and clues that we see in the Gospel of Matthew itself. There were two lines of prophecy concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament. The first is that he would be a king who rules, who will defeat all of the enemies of God's people, who will set up an eternal kingdom, who will conquer all evil. That's the first strand the first line of prophecy that is common in the Old Testament prophets. The second one is that there would be a suffering servant who dies for the sins of the people. That this Messiah would come and be wrongly treated. He would be greatly misunderstood. And he would die as a sacrificial offering for the sins of the people. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, the one who would come would be despised and rejected. Now, is there a way for us to see these things coming together? And I think what Matthew gives in just brief form, hinting at, he lays out in fuller form as we move through the Gospel of Matthew. But first, when we look at the word Nazareth itself, it comes from the word Nesser, which means branch. And there were several prophecies given in the Old Testament that talked about the branch of David who would come, who would be a ruler, who would lead over the people. In fact, Jesus himself in Revelation 22 speaks of himself and he says this, I am the root or the branch and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus understands that he is the promised branch who would come through David. And by being called a Nazarene, Jesus would be the branch promised of old. But secondly, Nazareth itself was a town of little renown in the first century. In fact, it was often considered a slur to be called a Nazarene. We see that in the Gospels themselves, that Nazarene was not esteemed by many folks. And as we said in the introduction to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, there was competition in that day between the southern territory of Judah and the northern territory of Galilee. And where is Galilee? Where is Nazareth? It's located in Galilee. Those that came from Nazareth were seen to be of lower class, of no reputation. Recall the words of Nathaniel in John chapter 1 where he asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet the prophet spoke many times of a Messiah who would come humbly, without special attention or beauty, without renown or account in the larger culture. And in that light, then, listen to what is said in Isaiah 53. For he, the Messiah, grew up before him, like the Lord, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so in the first century... Nazarene became a code word for those rejected by the powerful and the important, the rich and the beautiful. And so Matthew is taking the theme of the suffering servant, uses the term Nazarene, and applies it to a number of different Old Testament prophets that talked about the suffering servant 
and says that Jesus is the one, the ultimate one who was despised and rejected by his people, the one rejected by government leaders, the one rejected by the religious leaders, the one fought against by all the spiritual forces of wickedness. Because in the eyes of the world, he had come from the wrong town for the wrong time with the wrong purpose. Therefore, he was rejected, just as the prophets had predicted. So putting the prophets and the promises together, we will see in Jesus, in his own and perfect good timing, that he is both the ruler and the rejected one. The one who fulfills both lines of prophecy with his coming to earth at Bethlehem and growing up in Nazareth. And aren't we privileged to be part of such a great movement of God that he was despised and rejected so that we, through faith in him, might become those who are loved and accepted by God. This Nazarene of little renown from a podunk town would bring in a kingdom that will impact the world and change history and all of creation for he will save his people from their sins. But first he will be despised and rejected and then he will come again a day in glory and great power. What we see is that Christ makes all the difference. Bethlehem was a town of little importance. But Christ was born there because prophecy had to be fulfilled. And now the town of Bethlehem is celebrated. Nazareth was a town of little renown, but Jesus grew up there. And now the town is celebrated as the town that raised, as it were, the Savior. You may think that your life is not important. That you came from the wrong side of town. Or from the wrong town. Are you on the wrong path of life? But Christ makes all the difference. And if you're in Christ today, following in the path of the Galilean, the Nazarene, the one who's called the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, if you have embraced him as your Lord and Savior, depending only upon him to save you, you're now in the right family a citizen of the right kingdom on the right path that brings you to a wonderful eternity. Jesus led, led you on a new exodus from freedom of sin to now serve him and will lead you faithfully one day to the ultimate deliverance in the new heavens and the new earth. Have you cried out to that one, the Savior, the one who came to save his people from their sins? Are you leading, letting him lead you, falling on his face and saying, you alone fulfill all prophecy, you alone fulfill all righteousness, and you alone I will follow, because you alone know the way. If today you hear his voice, I pray you will not harden your heart, but repent and believe. We have seen the providence of God in this story, how he has guided events, people, situations, so that his plan will be fulfilled. Do you see God's guidance in your own life? 
Maybe that's a project for you this week, to take some time with your Bible open and say, Lord, show me how you're at work in my life. Think about the ways he's provided. Think about the ways he's guided so that you're in the situation you're in right now. And then turn it over to him and say, I praise you that you do all things well. Now help me serve you well in this situation. Now next week we're going to move towards the public ministry of Jesus. And we'll see that first there has to be a time of preparation and, and repentance. And so John the Baptist will take center stage next week in showing us who this one is who has come. And how he fits into God's plan. But as we await that week, and as we think about the, pro the providence of God, what are some lessons we can draw today from the lesson that is before us? One is that God's providence guides all that happens in your life. Therefore, trust him with each day he gives you. There is a spiritual war that is real, and the kingdoms of men fight against the kingdom of God without success. Therefore, persevere in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Thirdly, God is not absent in the midst of evil, but is working his promises through it. Therefore, we can always have hope. We should always be people who have hope. We've read to the end of the book. If we're in Christ, we're on the winning side. We should always have hope. But in the day-to-day -day of, our, of our lives here, because Jesus took on being despised and rejected so that we can be loved and accepted by God, let us rejoice and stand firm in our salvation. If you are in Christ, never doubt his ability to hold you and to keep you till the end. And as his children, as Christians, though perhaps despised by the world and perhaps a, a truth that will become more and more apparent with the passing of time, we can stand like Jesus with great honor in the eyes of God. We are accepted and loved because he was despised and rejected. Let's walk in the steps of our Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are, for the hope that we have in the gospel, for the fact that you don't miss a detail. And you orchestrate all of them so that your plan is perfectly fulfilled. Father, we trust you. And forgive us for those times when we allow doubt to take up residence in our hearts. We repent and confess our sins. And we're thankful that we can know you, the one true God and the one that you've sent, Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice in that this week, to represent you well and to serve you with great joy. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We, as we've been challenged to submit to God's leading and his will for our life and his providence and his working, let's close out our service. I'm going to invite you to stand as we sing, He Leadeth Me.
wonderful to be with you this morning in the house of the Lord. I'm going to remain down front afterward if there's a burden that you're carrying that you would like to just lay at the feet of the Lord. Come down, let's pray together, go to the throne of grace and receive his relief and his guidance. New classes starting today, one's going to meet up here, Dr. Don's class, another class is going to meet over in the library, that's Ken and Mark's class, and I'll continue with my class in the music room. Y'all come down now, you hear? Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let us go in peace and have a wonderful Lord's Day.